to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Matt Dwyer. If you like that music playing at Les Blanks, go to lesblanks.com. Check it out. Check it out. Sorry, I'm a little sluggish right now. Um, today's episode is pretty great. We have, uh, we, I have a conversation with uh, Hudson Marquez. He is the mind that conceived Cadillac Ranch. That's a piece of art out there in the middle of uh, the desert in Texas. It's a bunch of uh, Cadillacs buried into the dirt and then painted, and it's pretty awesome. It's a pretty, uh, pretty famous, pretty famous piece of uh, art there. Pretty famous piece of art. And then, uh, yeah, he was part of uh, Ant Farm. They did underground architecture and TV, TV. A lot of really cool art stuff. He's got some great stories about New Orleans and Professor Longhair. I'm just going to fucking... We start off with this story about Professor Longhair. Him, It's pretty great. I'm not going to say anything else. Enjoy. About, um, <laughs> is this okay? Am I, should I sit up? If you can get closer, if you sure. want to hold it, that's fine. No, I don't want to hold it. Uh, I can sit up here. Are you going to ask me about the... You, you would ask me about uh, finding Professor Longhair. Yeah, I did. And uh, uh, I don't know if people know who Professor Longhair is. I try, I try to educate people on that educate. one. I, I, right. When I discovered Professor Longhair, I turned everybody I knew. I was like... Do you know this guy? If you don't, you got to fucking hear this. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I grew up in New Orleans. I'm 65 years old. So that dates me back to uh, R&B, real R&B, not Rihanna. <laughs> I, which I, I've never heard Rihanna. Or I haven't either. Chris Brown, but I mean, I don't. I'm blind to current pop music. Or well, there's funk and there's R and B now, and then there's the New Orleans yeah, funk and R and B. R and B, rhythm and blues, hard. You know, it's like the difference between Bruce Springsteen and John Fogarty. I was like, Fogarty was listen, grew up listening to black rhythm and blues, where Springsteen grew up listening to Phil Spector pop, and that's how Springsteen's rock and roll is. I'm not a fan, but that's that's good. Dick. Good for everybody who loves them. But um, that I think people in pop music can tell the difference. What? Oh, that's and that, I grew up on that same R and B that. Uh, that let's say John Fogarty grew up on uh, to make a white reference, which is hard for me to do because I just <laughs> I don't know anymore. I'm embarrassed for white people making music, you know, except for country music. But anyway, um, I grew up in New Orleans, and we, it was the richest environment in New Orleans. When I was a, when I was a little kid, I wasn't particularly aware, but when I was a little kid, I didn't know this. It comes later. New Orleans was the biggest recording center in the United States. There was no Motown then. This is the early 50s through early 60s. There was no Motown. There was no Atlanta. There was no Memphis. Memphis made rock and, rockabilly music. But Stax didn't. Stay. New Orleans was the recording center. And um, Stax was, was New Orleans? Was New Orleans, yeah. And I... Uh, uh, was the biggest recording center. Everybody came to New Orleans to record. Uh, the local people who recorded, who were huge, were like Fats Domino. But Lil Richard recorded all of his tracks in New Orleans with the same band that Dave Bartholomew's band Fats recorded with, with the same great, incredible horn player, Lee Allen, saxophone player. And um, 
these guys all record at the same studio, Cosmo Matosis J&M Studios in New Orleans. Every hit that was on the radio came from there. There was a studio in Atlantic recorded in the East Coast, but Atlantic brought Ray Charles to New Orleans to record. I mean, I yeah, yeah. So New Orleans was the biggest recording center, and it was also, you know, where jazz was invented and born and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I grew up in a pretty really rich musical environment. That's and, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. th- th- to be... Yeah, it's and, and to grow up in that and to be steeped in that, it was just something that's just natural to, to me. I never thought it was anything special. When I was a little kid, I first heard Professor Longhair. My mother, uh, my mother went out every day, and we had a maid, a cook, and an ironing lady, both black, Lucille Holmes and her cousin Mimi. And they looked, and my mom went out, and that radio in the kitchen was tuned to uh, CBS News, you know, all things, you know, that kind of crap, uh, uh, CBS uh, Radio News. As soon as my mom was out of the driveway, it went to WBOK, which is We Be OK, and WYLD, We Be Wild Radio. <laughs> Two black stations, right? It went straight to that. And they gave me a chores when I was little, before I was, you know, when I was four and five, chopping garlic, how to chop onions, teach me how to cook, keep me out of the way. But I sat there, this is the only music I heard. I mean, I heard Gene Martin. You know, and I heard I heard a lot of opera and a lot of John McCormick, uh, Irish tenor music. But this was the music I listened to. I was like, you know, that's where I first heard Fest was on there. And um, but I didn't know who it was, but I loved the song, you know. And it it was uh, most probably Tipitina, uh, which was on, would have been on seventy eights back then. But they played seventy eights on the radio. It may have just come, but anyway, that's where I first heard Fest. That's where I first heard all R&B from, from all over the world, but especially from New Orleans. And um, as I grew older and started going to concerts and stuff, I think I went to my first show in New Orleans when I was 13, which was James Brown, 1960. He was the only white person there. I had my friend with me, but he wasn't really white. And that was... Uh, that was astonishing. T Bone Walker, James Brown, wow, Bobby Bland, TV Mama. I mean, it's huge. Thing. And that's when people fucking when musicians perform. Now it's like it's like, are you guys enjoying this at all? <laughs> it's Man, like, yeah, it was a really pretty amazing to grow up there. But Fest was always in the back of my mind. But no one knew what not nobody knew what he looked like. Everybody else played around. Oh, he was that obscure. Even well, it the- wasn't obscure. It was what it was that the other people started having pop hits, Benny Spellman, Ernie Cato, right. Emma Thomas, all Alan Toussaint produced stuff. Fats played. You saw Fats. You could go see Fats Domino. Um you could see Benny Spellman and Irma Thomas and Jesse Hill. All these different and, and they played around town like they regularly. Regularly. But long hair Long hair was ubiquitous at Mardi Gras because of his song Go to the Mardi Gras and, and Big Chief. And that was on every jukebox starting a month before Mardi Gras. It was constantly in rotation on all the radio stations. It's all you heard. And uh, in, uh, uh, but nobody, I, I just realized when I was in high school, whatever happened with long hair, what, you know, nobody, he wasn't like on the circuit of playing in New Orleans, any place. And we went to tons of black clubs. It was not that we, 
they just had little dances for white kids where they had the R&B people play. They, he wasn't there. So I'd always been mystified by this guy. Plus the name, Professor Longhair. What, you know. <laughs> and then I heard a guy on the radio talking to a DJ. He was a white guy, but he played black, and everybody, everybody in the world thought he was black. It was Papa Stoppa. And he was talking about Professor Longhair on the radio. And I heard him say that, oh, that the band was called Professor Longhair and his shuffling Hungarians. And I'm just like, what a great name. <laughs> what, what, the shuffling Hungarians. <clears throat> but anyway, and that, that was the name of the group. And, um, so, you know, I was, I went to school. I went to, I went to Tulane and still going to school in New Orleans. And I realized that, I realized from the time I was 15 that I had to get out of New Orleans. I mean, very repressive, and bigoted, race is just a constant, a very uncomfortable thing. In is, is it still pretty bad, isn't yeah, it? It's real bad. I mean, every time you walk out the door in New Orleans, you're confronted with some racial question, either abject poverty that you see or you're being robbed. I'm, I, and... You, it's just too it's uncomfortable. That, is it that, it's that thing? Because, I mean, you hear it's, that it's like... It's, well, you know what? You just keep your wits about you as a normal person. Nothing's going to happen to you. You also know suddenly, wait a minute. You know, I shouldn't be in this neighborhood. It's 10 o'clock at night. Maybe I should go right. someplace. Hard Especially if you're tipping them back as they do in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. you know, well, <laughs> that's what happens. You can feel good. And that's then... what happens in the French Quarter. That's where there's tons of crime in the quarter. Robberies and stuff like that in the back of the quarter. Because people... With cash, tourists, drunkard, and skunks, and, you know. So, um, New Orleans is just, you know, I just couldn't wait to get out. Because I'd been to New York, and when I was 15 or 16, I went, wait a minute, this is the real deal. This is, and the black people, I saw it was a black man driving a Corvette. I went, wait a minute. In New York? In New York. New Orleans, they don't let black people drive Corvettes. You get, yeah, they, you get pulled over. <laughs> you get pulled, yeah, you, they wouldn't sell one. Same with most of the country. <laughs> yeah, well, they wouldn't sell one to a black. You never saw a black right. guy in anything but a Cadillac or a really piece of shit car. But, I mean, a black guy driving a Cadillac? I was going, these Negroes up here are happening. I'm, I'm going to have to come to this place. <laughs> were you, had you already started doing art and stuff by 15? Yeah, 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 you yeah, knew was, what you yeah, were, wanted was, to do. Yeah, and I wanted you to had, be an artist, and I went to our school at Tulane, there was an art school. The, the girls' college part of New Orleans was called Newcomb College. My grand, my mother went there. My grandmother went to Newcomb. Old school. Sophie Wright Newcomb for Young White Christian Women was the original title. And Tulane had kind of absorbed it for their for the dowry, for the endowment. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, there was art school there, and I went to the art school. And after I was there for a while, uh, and this was in sixty. Six, sixty-seven. I was my my teacher told me, well, 65, 60, My art teacher told me one my the teacher I respected said, "You shouldn't be in school. You should just be going. Just go make art. You don't need all this crap. Just, just go make art. Get out. Get, get out. Get out of here." It's interesting because I talk to other artists and they go to art school just so they uh, maybe it's a era, but it's like for connections, and that's how they got in there. That's, well, that's now. But that's a, that's yeah, that's now. a... It, then, if you went to school, <clears throat> you got a BFA, and then the only thing you could do was go to graduate school and go someplace to be a teaching assistant until you got your, your school give you a studio. It, it, the only thing you could do was teach at that time. People didn't... Um, that's 
too bad because yeah. it seems like just go out and f- now, do now it. It's yeah. a business. Now it's a business. Yeah. These kids come out of RISD and places like that, and they're you know got gallery connections, and they're like you know <laughs> they're like they're like little snakes, a snake breeding for <laughs> snake art snakes. I, mean, you know, I, I don't you know that's just art world politics, but you know I, I just always painted. I, I never. I've never had, I don't think I've, well, I did have some summer jobs that were brutal, but I've never really had a job. I mean, you know, I mean. Isn't that pretty great? Yeah. (laughs) I've lied my way through all that shit. Uh, I mean, I've had other jobs later in life when I realized I didn't have a trade. When you first were doing art, what, like, because you went on and did sort of a lot of, like, guerrilla-type art. Yeah. Is that what you would categorize it as? I I wouldn't travel with rock and roll bands. I was a road manager. And who were some of the bands? <laughs> Cantees, oh, wow. Jefferson Airplane. I did Zepp's first tour. Um, uh, but you a know little what? bit of drugs on that tour for those boys? <laughs> no, there were no drugs anywhere. As a matter of fact, for I Led Zeppelin, I tried. No, there were no drugs with the airplane. Never took a drug. Candide never took a drug. Zeppelin never took a drug. You I'm hear me? Oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was like, I, 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 my brain froze no, there. No, no, no uh, there, were, there were guitarists in some bands. That in the English band that was mentioned that would shoot speed and get on step right and go right on stage, the curtain would open. That's a rush. Wow, that's a rush. Yeah, Earl Warren Showgrounds. Um, but I got realized after I was doing this that I was getting paid real well to say no all the time. It's what your job was, right? So, um, thank you, darling. <laughs> so, so my wife came and brought me cigarettes. So a bad habit. But anyway. Um, I, 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 I may have started traveling, but I kept an apartment in New Orleans because it was $60 a month. And I kept going back to New Orleans before I decided where I was going to live, LA, San Francisco. And you just hopped around until then. And I hopped around and I was, I was on the road and I didn't last long on the road, burn out. But anyway, the whole time, uh, New Orleans R&B was with me, you know, I mean, uh, I had I bought 78s wherever I traveled. I bought new, you know, Fats Domino records. The people I was working with were all very much aware of New Orleans R&B, and they all played it. Not the stage particularly. Cantee did once in a while. But there were all these mythic figures of New Orleans R&B. Sugar Boy, a guy named James Crawford, Sugar Boy and the Cane Cutters, one of Sinclair's favorite of all times. Um, and uh, long hair always stuck with me. So I went to New Orleans over a period of a year, going in and out of New Orleans, but I stayed in New Orleans mostly for this year, looking for long hair, because I realized nobody had ever seen him. And I asked Jesse Hill, I asked Cato, I asked all these people about long hair, and and they were all kind of tight-lipped. And they were all like, well, you know, fast he do, that bird he, you know. I, I don't know where he is. And I just couldn't figure this out. And um, I started asking around. And I went to the Jazz Archives at Tulane University, which had just been set up and was run by a guy named Dick Allen. And I told Dick I wanted to find this long-haired guy. Did he have any tips for me? And he started telling me people to talk to. He was a jazz guy. So I started hanging out in the French Quarter in these black back of black bar rooms and um, talking to these old musicians who knew everybody who ever played New Orleans music. And they would they would sit around. There were, were guys who, uh, old black men who wore white shirts 
starch white shirts, black bow ties, jackets, spencers, and striped boaters. They were out of another age, and they ate crabs every day, three or four of them. They were, they were horn players that and drummers. That sounds pretty great. <laughs> they ate cra- yeah, they ate crabs in the back of a place called Buster's. And uh, it was dark, and it was air-conditioned. And he's, these were real gentlemen. And I would go in there with them and talk to sweethearts. They were sweethearts. They all went over to Preservation Hall, which is a famous, yeah. famous place in New Orleans. They would go over there in the afternoon, see what's going on. And maybe they would get pickup gig at Preservation Hall at night. But they were pretty amazing guys, and they, they taught me about all the different families in New Orleans, who all the same families who were uh, uh, played for the same bands, Fats Dominoes and Dave Bartholomew's bands, and played in jazz bands, and now they're, you know, anyway. But nobody knew where Fess was. Nobody. And I, I could not figure this out. Um, I, I just knew that I narrowed down the section of the city he must live in from all these people, different people I talked to. Cause they kind of said, I, I see him once in a while and I see him around here. And, um, I never even thought to ask what he looked like. I said, I would just, you know, he, I, they see him around, around this area. So this is a black area. I'm white. I've got long, long hair and the New Orleans police don't like long hairs, they, and they do not like the black folks. They do not like Negroes. I mean, and here I am, a white kid with long hair, wandering around this ghetto neighborhood where there wasn't that much animosity from black folks to white people at the time. They were suspicious, of course. But the cops were the worst thing, because I would go and I would sit in a bar room and I would ask folks, and the black folks thought I was a bill collector, I was some kind of cop, but I was white, I was down there, I wasn't supposed to be, so that was, what good could come of, like, talking to me? But I persisted, and they, they realized I wasn't a bill collector after a while. So I gained some trust with some of the black people, but they were very, very protective. If I asked where somebody lived, their eyes would just roll up in the top of their head and go, I never heard Bird, who that? Say, <laughs> Professor Longhead, you know where, where, where Roy Bird lived? Roy, you know, I think I heard him on the jukebox, but I, I don't, I don't know nothing. I gotta go. This was constant, and <laughs> I mean, just, just totally constant. Um, and when the cops got me, they thought there's only two reasons for a white kid to be in a black neighborhood: pussy and dope. Dope, <laughs> do, dope being. As Mr. Brown puts, Mr. James Brown puts, King Heron. <laughs> so this is the only reasons I would be there. So they would, I got beaten a few times, but just on the shoulders with billy clubs. But they would take my hands, it was 115 fucking degrees, and they would take my hands and push them with a the baton on the hood of the car. Ooh. And I would get blisters on my hands, and they would tell me they never wanted to see me around there again. Whoa. Well, I couldn't keep away from this. And, um, also I was running out of money thing. It was, it was getting a little bit strange until I, one day I figured out that the label that Fess was on, Rick and Ron, these local labels, watch, uh, local labels that he had been on. He was, uh, semi-managed by, and the records were put out by a guy named Joe Asunto. The New Orleans record mob was all Italian. The unions, the record owners are all Italian. Uh, the Jews would come and lease the music, 
back to New York and nationally, but it was all Italian in New Orleans. And I f- said, you know, I should find Joe Asunto because he's the one who's getting all the checks. He fast never got a penny for the records. You know, maybe he knows something about this. And, you know. So I went to Asunto's. He had a, a thing called a one-stop record store on Rampart Street. It's a place where you go one, make one stop, get all your jukebox needs. They sold 45s to jukeboxes. So I went to his one stop, and he was there, and his daughter was there, and his daughter was hot. <laughs> she was like seventeen year old Italian girl that was like cross between Sophia Loren and Jane Mansfield, and Joe was just a blowdown snaky. You know, he owned these black people that he put the records out on. He owned them, you know, he, and um, it's just the whole typical story, right. you know. Anyway, so went there, and he told me he didn't know where Long Hair was. He had no idea. And he didn't trust me because he thought I was there trying to get royalties for somebody. So he basically kind of threw me out of the shop. They said, we're closing. But I didn't, I said, you know what? If I come back here and he's not here, that daughter, <laughs> I could talk to that daughter, I bet. She might know something. So sure as shit, I waited a few days. I kept staked out the joint. And he left, and the daughter stayed. Now, when he went to lunch, out to lunch, and I went in, and she was a sweetheart. And oh, she was just so sweet. Uh, but the best thing I got out of her was information. Now, nothing else out of her but information. That's too just, bad. I know. I know. I, 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 I fucked up. But I was on. I was. I was on a mission. I was on a mission from the R and B guys. I asked her. I said, "Fast, you know where?" She goes, "Oh, the old man. He comes here and sweeps out." Every week, he sweeps the store out. But oh, yeah, he gives man. him a job. And I'm like, he comes in here? And she goes, yeah, Bird, he's such a sweet old man. I said, how old? He's can't be cut that old. She said, well, you know, he limps. And I said, holy shit. I said, no, I'm looking for a limping guy with straight and long hair. She, and I said, you know where he lives? And she said, oh, yeah, he lives on Dryad Street. And she gave me, she didn't give me the address. She gave me the block. And it was the place I'd been. So for the next a month, I every day uh, I was living in the French Quarter, and, and every day I would have coffee and donuts for sixty cents. It's my breakfast and morning, uh, and then I would go just drive around, kind of sniff around that neighborhood. There was a bar on the corner called the uh, Big Apple Bar. And it was a typical New Orleans, it had been a grocery store and bar, it had second floor, it was a clapboard, clapboard, it's torn down now. So it had a big second floor where the people lived above the bar. And I narrowed it down to this block where he lived, and I went in the bar. Somebody told me on the street, you fessy, be up in that bar. So I went to the bar every day at 11 o'clock in the morning, and there were old gentlemen eating crabs in there. And I would ask, I asked the bartender for, you know, seen long hair. And he said, no, I, you know who he is, but never seen him. I knew this was bullshit. So I sat in there for almost a month, putting quarters in the jukebox, playing Roy Brown and James Brown. And um, I started bringing food. I started bringing bushels of crabs. And those guys would cook them up. Finally, I gained their trust. And I, the, behind the bar was a stairway that went up to the second floor and uh, it was behind the bar it was just part of the building it's just typical New Orleans 
uh, I guess that building was built in most probably, it was a 19th century building. Uh, so I sat there. I didn't particularly pay attention to these stairs, but um, this guy tapped me on the shoulder. I was reading the newspaper, tapped me on the shoulder. When I, look, I looked up. The door opened up, up, just opened up upstairs, and there was a guy standing there. It was obviously long hair. The presence was just like, it was God. And so after a year of this crap, I was, I mean, I was just, I was frozen to the spot. I could have shit myself, I thought. I, just, <laughs> I know this is the guy. I know this is the guy. And he walked down the stairs with a limp. He had on a shirt that was outside. He had black pants on, and he had on kind of a almost a guayabera kind of shirt, but a big shirt that was to cover up the gun that was stuck in his waistband, which I didn't know about when he's walking down the stairs. But he came down and he stared at me from behind the bar, and then he went back upstairs. And I went to the bartender and I went, "Was that Bird?" And he said, "Yeah." He says, "No, I've been telling him that you were here." I said, "Oh, you've been telling him like." <laughs> And they were looking at me like, hey, it's obvious. He's Well, what he was doing up there was dealing cards. He was a card dealer. It's what he was doing for a living. And there was a, a, a large, at that time in New Orleans, there was a, a lot of wealthy black people who had been contractors, who owned a fleet of taxi cabs, owned beauty salons. And these guys, uh, they gambled a lot. They drank. And during the day, they went to the Big Apple, and there was a card poker game upstairs. Big money, all cash. And Fess dealt and guarded the game with his gun. Well, Fess came down the next day and came out and talked to me. And we ate and we talked. And he told me how much he loved Roy Brown. He loved all the horns. And I'm going, horns? Horns? <laughs> oh, I love the horns, man. I was, you know. So uh, I said, so where are you living? Can I come over? And he went, well... And I went upstairs with him to talk, and the card game started, and I stayed there. And I started going up and watching him deal cards to these guys. And then I was like, um, I saw the same scene in Goodfellas where Joe Pesci shoots the kid in the foot. Yeah. I was the kid. I was getting drinks and stuff. <laughs> I was making drinks. They didn't, you know, they didn't have to make their own drinks now. The white kid makes the drinks. I, believe me, I was a Negro heaven. Uh, these were guys, I mean, I, I learned more in like, you know, a, a week there about life than I could have learned my entire life. And Fess was just amazing. He had very heavy lidded. His hair was getting gray and it was, it was, it was straightened in the back. It was kind of long. And, um, the, uh, uh, after a while, Fess told me that the guy who owned the bar and owned the card game didn't want me there because you know, the cops, you know, white kid and cops. So Fest took me over to his house where I had actually been knocking on the door. And I think the address, I can't remember, the address was 1529 North Drive, South Drive. Anyway, I went to that house. He used to knock on the door. And it was, a woman would come to the door behind the screen in a shotgun house. And she'd go, well, I don't, I, I, yeah, I seen him around. I don't what well, was his house? It was his wife, Alice. He took me home with him. And um, he had no piano. He had no sheet music because sheet music had been written on everything he'd ever done. And he'd had transcriptions done. People had done this for him. There were no posters, no pictures, 
No business cards, no nothing. Why, why did he, like, drop out? Like, did, did you ever answer that? Or? An incident occurred. He was, and I'm never quite sure what year this was, but he had a house. He had a house, and he played in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans, and the Black Ninth Ward was traditionally all black. He played in the Ninth Ward, and he had been a gangster in the 40s, his story. He was a gangster. He was a marijuana guy. He was the heaviest guy in New Orleans. He's the heaviest black guy in New Orleans. And he had a criminal past. And he, that's why he did not play to a white audience. The records were out all the time. And he got paid. You know, black folks, they were very happy to get $50 and a bottle of wine for a song like Muddy Waters did. Because you know what? They didn't understand royalties or records, anything. That's a concept that was beyond them. They didn't know about publishing and know anything. But if they had a record on the radio, they got to charge a hell of a lot of money to play live. And that's where they made their money. So Fest was doing the same thing. At Mardi Gras, he was playing for these high bucks, Ninth Ward bar rooms. That's where he played. But he could not actually kind of be in public because he had been such a Gangster. People would come for him. People would come for him. So what happened to him was where he completely stopped playing at all, any place, was some gangsters came into his house over some kind of beef, maybe cheating at cards when he was dealing, don't know, poured a pile of gunpowder in his living room and set it on fire. Burned the house down and everything they owned. Wow. And so he... He had to make a living, so he dealt cards at the Big Apple and lived down the street, but paid rent. It wasn't his house, which he was a very proud man. I like it. Also, his Alice's mother, his wife, is a wonderful woman. Alice's why? Alice's mother was dying, either dementia or cancer. There was like an old black woman, like a mummy, that was in a bed in, in one of the rooms. I was like freaked out. And uh, But I spent a hell of a lot of time at Fess's house with him. And I had friends. I, I was broke. and I Totally broke. And I, I asked Fess if I got him a piano. Would he, you know. Well, I had a friend who was a, guy, a, a very sweet, nice man named Nick Buck who was playing piano in a band called Hot Tuna, which is an offshoot of the airplane, so on and so on. And Yorma Kalkinen uh, is a, a folky, great guitar player from the airplane. And he played Hot Tuna. And they had, RCA had a label called Grunt's Records that the airplane, they gave it to the airplane. And the Hot Tuna and the airplane records came out on Grunt's. Yorma said to Nikki and me that if I'd found long hair, he would put the record out. And the, the, the dead, too, Jerry Garcia. And uh, one of the guys who was playing piano with the dead at the time, they also had a custom label. They said they would put it out. Because they were like, this long hair is just, you know, the real deal. You're not any toy town piano player from St. Louis. This is the real fucking deal. So they were all music, musicians, musicians. So um, I got, uh, I borrowed money. <coughs> and uh, I had about $1,000. It was a lot of money. And Nikki came down to New Orleans. And we, we, we talked long hair. We rented him a piano. And I realized I was going to have to deal with the Musicians' Union. So I went to the Italians at the Musicians' Union and said I wanted to get Fess because we wanted him to play. 
we did not want to foul up. We did not want to get him. He was saying the musician junior won't let me play. I, I can't. We're gonna all his officers. He were wanted to go. play, right? Oh yeah, he wanted to play. He wanted to play. He was very cagey. He was like, I don't know if I want to do this. You know, them women's bother me when I play. They come and bite my neck. <laughs> I don't know. I can't take that anymore. And Alice was sitting there in the living room, going, "Huh, huh? He want to play? Brad's long hair." So fast was he, he. He was. He played us like you know, a, a well used violin. He was a very cagey guy, and Fess was. But I don't know if I want to play. The more we asked, he said, "I may. I don't know." So we said, "We we'll get your electric piano. There's a new electric piano called Fender Rose. It's 88 keys. Play electric piano." But I don't. Maybe. maybe. It's in the <laughs> union. There's a the union problem. I went to the union. The union told me there was an $800 problem. Whoa, 800 bucks. So I paid the 800 bucks. My life savings, everything I owned, I know what I borrowed. I gave him the $800. The union guys say to me, look, you see that Mac Rabinac anywhere that Dr. John out there in California? I said, yeah, I would see him once in a uh, He owes us a lot of money. Mac couldn't play in New Orleans up until it was in the 70s or 80s because, well, because of an ex-wife and, and the union. But anyway, the union, well, I realized when I got this union piece of paper from the union, I looked at, looked at it closely, it said that they have a rehearsal hall. It's a room for rehearsal. So we got Fess a piano. We got him back in the union. And um, I started carting him. He got a, he called the drummer. And a guy named Big Will. I didn't know where he came from. Drummer. And he... Uh, Started rehearsing songs, put a set together, and every day we'd I'd go and take care of them and lunch and all that stuff, and cart fest around, and he, he just said that there's a piano at the uh, at the rehearsal hall, and he, as soon as he sat down and played, it was like there was no law. I mean, this was amazing. This was the guy. This was my holy grail for a hundred years. <laughs> it was all there. It wasn't like. I've known some other piano players that had strokes. Amos Milburn, for instance, a boogie woogie piano player. Oh, yeah, I, I have some. I love him. I, I, well, Amos, I saw Amos Milburn. I'll show you my Amos Milburn, uh, uh, my big Bull Moose Jackson autograph. And my, <laughs> uh, because Amos had a stroke and he's kept playing, but he played with his right hand. It was pretty amazing still. Just the right hand? Just the right hand. His left hand was stroked out. A lot of these guys, you know, realize they were black men who grew up in the South with no medical attention. And they got beat. They got, they were living in rough neighborhoods. They went through rough stuff. And if they got an injury, they didn't get the right treatment. I found a harmonica player in Natchez, Mississippi. And he, uh, Papa Lightfoot, made a couple of sites for Imperial. Amazing guy. I found him. He had a, when I, when I found him, he, in Natchez in front of his house, he had no shirt on. He had a scar that was like, a snake it was that thick around. It was like a rope that ran all the way down his stomach from a knife fight. And eventually that eventually killed him because he was an alcoholic and his stomach was screwed up. But, I mean, these people, when they took it, they didn't get the right, right care. So I, you never know what was going to happen. When Fess sat down and played, it was all there. It was just magical. I could have spent the rest of my life just carting Fess to rehearsal if I had the money. <laughs> and, and when we got him a gig, got him a gig. And he he chose the place. It was a Ninth Ward bar room, and it was fifty cents a cover 
charged in this black bar run. What year was this? This was 69. 69. Had you been 69 or early 70? I, I was trying to think about that because I knew you were coming. I, my memory is... The, the drugs we did not take on the road <laughs> had gotten to me. I, I, I'm 69 is when I interviewed him. I, t- I, t- I took a woolen sack tape recorder, reel-to-reel quarter-inch woolen sack, weighed 100 pounds. I should get one of those. Yeah, I think, you, well, this is a recorded on a woolen sack A22. Uh, and, 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 and Dwyer just his humps this thing, the other see his right arm. Uh, so we... I, I took this over there and I recorded fast for 15 minutes. I didn't, uh, I, well, I was kind of shy, I was shy and fast didn't want to really talk. But I did this 15 minute recording of him with the date and everything. I took it to the jazz archives to Dick Allen and said, you know, I found him and I interviewed him. And Fest told me about his history in New Orleans and how, how he grew up. And I gave it to them. And Dick Allen was blown away. He was like, I told you, I trained you to do this, didn't I? Yeah, I love the guy. Um, the, uh, uh, gave that to the jazz archives, which they have. You can go to the Hogan, it's now called the Hogan Jazz Archives, and you can listen to that. Or you can go to the, uh, uh, there's other archival stuff that I did. There's a lot of, I think, online too now. That where you could, I don't know about that stuff specifically, but I know there's the jazz and hair, you know, there's the the jazz festival. It has an arm that has nothing to do with the nastiness of putting on a big show every year with Jimmy Buffett and... Oh, the great Jimmy Buffett. The great Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> yeah. I, I love songs about cheeseburgers and... <laughs> yeah, and this is... In, yeah, this is... It's called Real the New Orleans s- Jazz and Heritage Festival, but somehow Springsteen was closing, and it was like... Well, yeah, yeah anyway. I, I've looked at that, and I was just like, how did... I don't even like the other all the other like the folk festivals and the blues festivals. I'm like these fucking guys. (laughs) Well, you know what? It's it's it has to do with money. Yeah, it has to do with the guy who runs it, who is going to come into this story shortly, where it ends for me with Fess. Was a guy named Quint Q U I N T Davis, Quentin Davis, rich kid from New Orleans. I grew up with him. Uh, We called him the White Roach. He could dance. I went to dancing school. Miggy Feld was dancing school with uh, with uh, Quint, and uh, Quint really wanted to be black. He thought he was black. He wanted to be black. He wanted to be in James Brown's band. Well, he had enough money and uh, uh, to back a psychedelic band that he played tambourine in and danced with, and uh, he inherited his dad. Arthur Davis, an architect, the business part of an architecture firm that we called Curtis and Devious. I should not be saying all this stuff. Please. <laughs> anyway, but um, he, he, Quint, uh, or as Fess referred to him, Mr. Quince. Mr. Quince um, uh, was someone who was going to stay in New Orleans, and um, he he had the wherewithal to take over long hair is what happened. And I told Fess, I ran, I'm mean, Fess, Quint, Mr. Quince, I ran into Quint and I said, look, I, you know, I don't even live in New Orleans anymore, but Quint said, yeah. I said, listen, you know about long hair? I said, I found this guy and somebody has got to do, he's playing. We had a gig and so on, so on. You got to, you know, somebody's got to do something with him. It's not going to be me. I'm not a manager. And Quint was, Quint said, well, maybe I'll look into it. 
Well, I didn't tell him where Fess lived. <laughs> but guess whose girlfriend was a secretary at the Jazz Archives? <laughs> Mr. Quince. <laughs> she had all the information. Wow. She had all the information. And um, uh, that's where I lost Fess. I mean, I, I, he was still my friend and everything. But um, when between the time when uh, we got the his first gig he had played first in a million years at this place um, uh, was pretty incredible. I mean, and the audience was the people who crammed the bar room because it was just a cardboard sign on the outside of the bar. This is a, play, a part of New Orleans that the cops don't go in. They look down the streets and go, oh, yeah, <laughs> they do not go there. <clears throat> and there's a cardboard sign. I wish I had taken it, but I, I couldn't. Uh, it was a cardboard sign that said, Professor Long here, 50 cents, cover, written on hand, with a ballpoint pen stuck in the barroom door. And they came. The place was jam-packed. It was uh, uh, a scene out of, you know, a movie, you know. Fess played in the corner with Big Will and uh, had a guitar player. And uh, it was wild. It was totally wild. And Fest, the more he played, the more the audience fed, he fed on that audience. He was outrageous. He was totally outrageous. He kept, he had all the patter from the 40s and 50s. Uh, I'll be back in the flash with some more trash. We'll take a pause for the cause. Uh, and he had a song, his song Ball the Wall. Yeah. Which is about fucking a woman in the alley between sets. Yeah, we got a ball wall standing up in the alley. Well, Fest went outside, smoke a bugle. Oh, yeah, he, they all smoked a lot of weed, these guys. I did at the time, too. And um, Fest, I went out to smoke a muggle between sets. And there were women out there. And uh, Fest had turned away. And his hands were huge. And he could, like a close-up artist hiding a silver dollar, could hide a joint. And a, you could talk to him, and he would have a joint in his hand, and you would not know it. And that came from smoking dope outside and the cops going by. And they just hid the joint. They hid it. Fess had told me that he'd talk to cops with a lit joint. And it was a game. And, you know, they're not going to find this. You know, I'll, put, I'll, I'll close my hand on it and put it out if I, you know. So we went outside. That's when Fess was, that's when Fess really complained about the audience. He said, Hudson, Mr. Hudson, he said, you know, I told you those women would be biting my neck. <laughs> that was his main complaint, which he loved every minute of it. Well, from that moment on, I knew that Fess was going to be okay, but he needed to have something happen. So I talked to, when I saw Quint, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't live in New Orleans. I couldn't take it. And, um, so I, Quint, so Mr. Quint said, Quint, you got to do something. And I gave Quint some records because he didn't know anything but the Mardi Gras songs. So I gave Quint the records. And Quint and Allison, his girlfriend, a lady who was with Quint for a long time, they took over and Quint, started the Jazz Fest. Uh, Ween, George Ween, who did all the Newport, he does every Jazz Fest, he's the guy who did festivals. He wanted to do something in New Orleans, and uh, 
Quint, he was there, and Quint had been promoting some gigs. And so Ween and Quint got together about doing something, and they started the jazz festival together. Uh, Ween did it. Quint was his main man, and Quint went out and found acts, you know. And Quint had fest play. And the first jazz, I went to the first two jazz festivals. They were in Congo Square in New Orleans, where the birthplace of jazz was. It's like a, a park, a little park. And they had four stages. The music would bleed. There would be gospel singers. It was just little wooden stages. People just kind of walked up. Pretty sweet stuff. And um, Fess was playing with a really killer drummer and Snooks Eaglin, a legendary New Orleans uh, blind, blind Snooks guitar player. It was pretty amazing stuff. And Quint and Allison did right by Fess. They exploited... Uh, his talent, and treated him honestly, and had him, he's traveling around the world. Fess, and Fess would be going to Switzerland. And I would talk to Fess, and when I was in New Orleans, I'd go visit Fess. And he would tell me about his travels around the world. And one time I went to his house, Quint, he got, Fess loved uh, electronic gadgets. I mean, any kind of gadget, Radio Shack. So I'd always go to the Radio Shack and get some kind of off thing. Went to his house um, in the 70s, and I guess about 76 or 77, he was living in a real nice place, and Alice was Alice was taking care of his money that came into him, and Allison Minor and Quint Davis were taking care of him to the white world. And he had a, a, a mantelpiece full of, like, extension cords and little things, Fess was a king. He was sitting here, kind of a lazy boy, you know. <laughs> had some duct tape on it, but he he was sort of kind of a lazy boy. And I went to visit him. I brought him this thing, and he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll look at this later. I looked up on the wall, and there was a picture of Jimmy Page and Bobby Plant with an arm around Fess. And I went, Jesus, God. And I said, this is, this is, I said, Fess. Because he some pictures of himself with some people up there. I said, Who's that? <laughs> Who's that? Fess go, oh, Alice? Who knows the English boys up there? <laughs> Alice says, Fess, you know that Bobby and Jimmy? <laughs> oh, yeah, Bobby and Jimmy. They're very nice fellas. I'm like, I'm, I'm going, Fess is going to do okay. You know? <laughs> and and I, I talked to Fess the rest of his life. He used to call, he used to, he had no, Fess had absolutely no perception of a, Distance or anything. It was geography. He was from New Orleans. He thought when he came to California to play that that I was just around the corner. He didn't know why I wasn't there. But he was in San Francisco and I'm in L.A. He's playing a gig at the boarding house in San Francisco. Allison called me and said, Fest thinks you live around the corner. Very <laughs> upset that you're not coming to the gig. So I flew up there to see him. That was, wasn't the last time I saw him, of course, but it was the last time I saw him playing for a, uh, you know, club crowd outside of New Orleans. And it was, it was, he was, he was just an amazing human being. You know, he only left New Orleans once because he had hits with, with, with Tipitina and uh, uh, so, uh, these other songs were hits for Atlantic Records. And um, he went to L.A. once to play. And he never left again. Never not until, and this was the 50s. Right. And he took, he told me this story. He had this song that was on the radio. 
L.A. Central Avenue down here was huge jazz and R&B center. And he had some kind of manager of the record company was going to send him from New Orleans to Los Angeles. And Fess told me the story. He said they were supposed to give him two tickets for Alice, one for him. But only one ticket was there. He didn't like that. <laughs> but Alice got him, said uh, for him to go. Now, the piano player, he told me his whole story about why he was a piano player. Too. You have to tote no drums because he was a drummer. But he realized it was a piano in every house and every bar room. So it was like, I got to tote no drums. <laughs> I play the piano. So he doesn't have any luggage. He goes out there. He gets here to L.A. I'm sure they put him up in one of the hotels because he said he was a hotel over the place on Central Avenue. Put him up in there. And he said, Hudson, I, I couldn't get anything to eat. I said, they didn't feed you? Wow. Well, I wouldn't call it food. I said, what What? What? What'd you want? He goes, all I wanted was a wiener and some loose grits. <laughs> I couldn't get a wiener and some loose grits. And so he played one night and took the train home the next morning because he couldn't get a wiener and some loose grits. Well, maybe I, maybe he had a good point. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I often think that. I, I ate in a terrible restaurant last night, and I was thinking about you and today, and I was thinking, you know, I wouldn't mind having a wiener and some loose grits right in the food. I, I wouldn't even know where to get that in L.A. Uh, right here. I would. I could fix you up with one. I might have to go to Ralph's. I don't have any grits. I got some loose oatmeal, though. Anyway. I'm sorry. You got questions. Oh, I've no, done, I, I've done nothing loose. but talk. I, I, yeah. Well, that's what the whole point yeah, is. is whole I here. Well, that's good because I will talk. But I was like, I'm interested in like, because you give, served me a glass with Cadillac Ranch on it. And it's like, yeah. I mean, isn't that... It, when you're walking around a grocery store or Target and you see that, doesn't that just kind of blow your goddamn mind that it's like, well, you know like what? I, that I'll is something what, I had something to do with for starters. Well, you know what? I did it. I had a good idea. I said I had, I say that I had two good ideas in my life. One was a Cadillac Ranch and the other idea was to copyright it as a piece of art. Which probably people didn't do back then, did they? Rarely. Rarely. There was always, with painters, there was always the deal that that people didn't reproduce the the image world was a lot different. Nobody paid attention to it. But when I saw when the morning after the piece was finished, and I went out there at dawn and looked at it, I went, "This thing, this is good. <laughs> this is really good." And I mean, you know, there's a there's an idea about making art that actually Marcel Duchamp gave this in 1954. Or much later than that, in 1960s, Duchamp gave this lecture in Houston, Texas, in which he brought up this thing. He made I never we, it's transcribed and everything. People know about it called the art coefficient, and it's it applies to music or cooking or anything you create. Really, is that you have in your mind? You go, okay, I'm going to make that loose 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 uh, grits and wieners for you. So <laughs> I have in my mind a plate. And I've had it in my mind for many years since Fett told me of a wiener, a boiled or a fried hot dog, and some loose grits, hot, runny grits. I've had that in my mind. Well, that's 100%. That's what you would like to have. You start from a zero, and what you're looking at in your head is 100%, that plate mm -hmm. of grits. You never get there. It's never exactly what it is. Things change on the way there. When you're making a piece of art, things change. You start to write a song, things change. Shit happens, and it's never what you thought it was going to be. If you're 
uh, uh, a fanatic, you know, if you're a fanatic, if to- totally anal, again, that fucks you up. <sighs> I didn't get it. I have to do it again. I am not that kind of person. But, so I, but Duchamp was saying that no, nobody ever gets to 100%. He said, 50's good. And I'm going, and I, when I read this a long time ago, I went, wow, this is fantastic. I get it. So I really get it. He, he put some kind of thing on this, this artist did, a good, great artist, Duchamp. Anyway. Well, I knew that I never got close to 80% my entire <laughs> life, and 50 right. would be great. I was out there dawn after Cadillac Ranch and, and looked at it and went, this is fucking close to 90. I'm f- it f- scared the shit out of me. It really scared me. And my partners, Man Farm, my two partners, Doug and Chip, uh, uh, they, they thought it was okay. But I knew it was better than just okay. And um, I knew that people were going to take pictures of this. And I could just see it going on calendars and shit. And I, and I said, um, today it would be, let's monetize this. But I just said, you know what? We could copyright this. And I did something. All you have to do, and Chip, my friend Chip, and part of Chip was in Amarillo at the time. I thought of this. Write a C, put a circle around it, technically, and write Ant Farm by our names on the piece. Take a picture of it. That's technically will stand up in court. Really? Yeah. So we also got a lawyer to copyright it and file it in federal, but that will stand up. Yeah. It stands up. Got what a great foresight. <laughs> yeah. So I said, this is good. So when I, when Target puts out the Cadillac Ranch glasses, I'm very happy about that <laughs> because they didn't ask permission to use the image and they have tea towels, oven mitts and plates with the Cadillac Ranch on them. It says Cadillac Ranch and we've got the cars buried in the ground. Um, I smell copyright troubles. I smell my rent being paid. <laughs> you know? How does, uh, but how did, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what did blow my mind. I mean, this is just, there are tons of stuff, Chachkis with Cadillac Ranch on it that people make. But, and we've, we've never released any of it. They just do it. Well, it's still like, like a quite flattering though, because it's like, I mean. Well, I'll tell you what is flattering. This is frightening. Disney made a movie called Cars. I don't know if you ever saw Cars. Uh, no. Cartoon movie. Well, it's it, it's okay. It's no kidding. Movie. They came to us. A guy named John Lasseter who runs Pixar. Yeah. And this guy's a he's a he's an artist. He was a fucking you know he, he was an animator. Anyway, he's brilliant. And Lasseter respects artists. And he came to us because the design of the town that the cars live in, and where all the place where all this takes place is a little town called Radiator Springs. And the mountains behind it are the Cadillac Ranch. Wow. The rocks are the Cadillac Ranch. They're tail fins going like that. It's called the Cadillac Range. And Lasseter came to us and said, I'm making this Disney picture. We want to use it. Instead of ripping it off and then saying, fuck you later, when you try to do something about it. So we made a deal with him. And just for this and that alone, blah, blah, blah. And um, we paid the rent for a while. <clears throat> well, it was, oh, it's never enough money. You always go, why? They, they still treat you like shit. You're an artist. <laughs> so We have a great deal of respect for artists yes, in our, 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 our culture. just really, really <laughs> respects us. So um, I just, they have now built an attraction at Disneyland called Cars Land. And they built... 
is a Disney ride with the Cadillac range in the background. It's 200 feet high. You look out, you can look from anywhere in the park from one of the hotels and you can see the Cadillac ranch. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's tits on Disney, you know, pipe dream shit, man. It's, they know what they're doing. They know how to make a fake rock. And what it does is it, 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 um, serves as a curtain, as a backdrop to make the fantasy real. Because if there wasn't a Cadillac range back there, rocks, little mountain range, you would just be, it, you know, there'd be some silly amusement park rides or something, which they have at the thing, Radiator Springs. It is a fucking gold mine. We went down after it opened to see it. Stanley Marsh, who is a patron of the Cadillac Rancher, Texas oil man, Will's Wretched Texan, a wonderful patron, one of the best patrons you ever have. Stanley paid for everybody to go to Disneyland. That was a mind fuck because it's, it's huge. It's a huge Cadillac ranch and everybody, nobody knows where it came from. And we were to Disneyland, which is a frightening experience. And for me, uh, <laughs> and it was just crowded with people. They were making $15,000 a second on all the attractions that are in Radiator Springs. It's really well done. And you can take a ride. The big deal is a, there's a race car. They get in the cars from the Disney movies, and it's a track that they take you on. It's like a little roller, you know, it's a fancy roller coaster, basically. It runs, it runs through the range. We went on the ride. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's got to be that surreal. That scared me to death. This is Disney. Disney, yeah. man. Disney, I, I mean, it's so iconic, you know. That the little money almost didn't hurt. <laughs> but the, that was frightening. If you would have copywritten that, you would have spent the last few decades crying. <laughs> you would have, could you, you imagine? Jeez, oh, you know, because you would have been. You probably would have gotten fucked more. Oh, like we got fucked more. Well, we got fucked more. You know, uh, it's been. You know, it's been an annuity. It's thirty something years old, and so the piece. So. Over all those years, every year something happens, right? You know? And right now, as you're drinking out of the Target glass, <laughs> kids get yours before they take it off the shelf. Um, it, it, it's in the Curiosity Shop, S H O P P E section of Target. <laughs> you can order them online; they're cheap. Now, how do you go from like? Because I would imagine, like, when you started doing art, it was more traditional, and yeah, it was how painting, you, yeah. To, to escalate to to that, and you were involved with TV, TV. Yeah, TV, TV was next because you know what happened to us at Ant Farm was we were this Ant Farm was this kind of collective that um, uh, we did uh, underground architecture. That's where the That's term it. Ant Farm comes from because the uh, guys were talking and teaching Doug and Chip were teaching architecture at Houston. It's one of the things you can do after you get an architecture degree is teach architecture. <laughs> They're teaching at the University of Houston, and they were smoking some weed with some uh, student girl, girl, and they said, um, so what is it that you actually guys do? And uh, Doug said, well, it's kind of like there's underground papers, it's underground comics, and this is like underground architecture. That's the kind of architecture we do. He just kind of made that up on the yeah, spot. Yeah, Doug made that up. And the girl goes, oh, like an ant farm. And that's where ant farm comes from. <laughs> it's underground <laughs> architecture. So um, we, uh, 
<clears throat> that's where the name came from. And Doug and Chip and I and Curtis, a guy named Curtis Schreier founded the group. And we lived in San Francisco and in Sausalito, in the bad end of Sausalito, uh, the junkie warehouse, houseboat area. And um, we we did architecture gigs. We did design work. We did lectures. We did whatever it took to pay the rent. Um, <laughs> we did some strange things in Marin County to pay the rent. Uh, but... Uh, Eventually, the big deal that happened for Ant Farm was the Cadillac Ranch. There were some houses built, residences and private commissions and things like that, that Ant Farm did or Doug Michaels did because he was, he was the one who was like stone architect. I was an artist. Chip was halfway in between. So <clears throat> this is how we operated. And this guy, Stanley Marsh, came along to Amarillo, Texas, and I... I had not, I just stopped painting. I didn't make art. We did graphics. We drew a lot and we designed things, you know, but we didn't, I didn't paint. And this was painting was like fucking museums, wall art, fuck that. <laughs> fuck them. We did, we did, um, uh, performance. Well, they call it performance art now. Oh, it's a terrible thing that is. We did, <laughs> we did real confrontational kind of environmental crap art and we were known for that. As, as kind of a radical group. Uh, and uh, we were always on the outlook search for, like, rich people in San Francisco who needed a little remod, their <laughs> squash court, their mansion in Pacific Heights. And, you know, um, we, we had a couple of patrons. But we got, somebody brought us a video camera, a guy from New York named Frank Gillette. Uh, something called Raindance, first Tiny video cameras to be to be used. Sony cameras. No, they just got them directly from Japan. Frank Gillette came to Ant Farms Warehouse in Sausalito and had this little camera. We were like, well, once I put my eye in the camera, that was, I was gone. I went. <laughs> I mean, I grew up. I cried when they plugged the TV in when I was a kid. I sat there and cried. So this was like. There's there's a little screen in here, and I just push the button, and my friends are on here. This is it. Well, Chip and Doug and I and Curtis, we dropped any of this shit. We were starting to do shitty gigs to pay for videotape. We were gone. We were addicted, you know. And <clears throat> and they're, they're, uh, to that point, there really hadn't been video art. There was no video art. There was no. We we made the first video art. Us and a group brain dance in New York, and a group called the Video Freaks. We made the first video. They they did different things. Well, we did our own thing with it. But yeah, we had the first. We were in the first video show at the Berkeley Museum. Um, we put on the first group video show. It was since the Sausalito. It was called Video Slumber Party. <laughs> you come and spend the Such night. A great name. <clears throat> video slumber. We had a TV. We had a slumber party. <clears throat> we were big on slumber parties, and um, I, I try to get a lot of slumber parties yeah, going on I, with, but no, no ladies want to have them with me. No. <laughs> well, we well, we were fucking the TV. So I mean, I yeah. yeah. But anyway, that's and in this in the process of trying to raise money to do a project because we realized we want to be on TV. We don't want to be the guys at the cable company going, hi, it's very interesting you're planting these tomatoes at this time of year. <laughs> we didn't want to be that person. We wanted to be on TV. But, and you were doing kind of subversive television. We were very too. subversive stuff. Like we very were, sort of attacking yeah, the yeah. media. We were attacking the media and we were attacking the, the oil companies 
and we were really making fun of the media. Totally. Way ahead of its time. Yeah. Mailing the fucking media. The local news, we would put together edits of just local news fools. And, uh, we were shooting, we were shooting stuff that, uh, we realized was going to turn into something, but we wanted people to see it. And, you know, it wasn't message art. It had to be entertaining. The problem with message art and hard information on television is it's fucking boring. It's boring. I was listening to NPR coming back from Orange County last night, and a really juicy subject, slavery, slavery around the world, human slavery, sex slavery, illegal worker slavery. The three people they had talking about this. Almost put me to sleep. Almost put my wife to sleep who was driving. <laughs> how boring, can, you know, this is how that hard information is transmitted. You've got to, it's got to be entertaining. And our sense of humor was pretty good. And in the process of looking for a rich rich people, well, I got a, we had a list, swear to God, we had a list of eccentric millionaires. I mean, can, do, does this list still exist? Yeah. I don't make a, any money off of this thing. <laughs> well, this was in 1972. Oh, so they're dead. Oh, no, one of, <laughs> our, our Stanley Marsh is still alive. Stanley was on this list. But the list was amazing. It was like from the high-level hippies in San Francisco, Stuart Brand, who had the whole Earth catalog, and, uh, a guy named uh, – anyway, there were a bunch of like – they were liberals. strong with San Francisco liberals. These were <laughs> Volvo-driving Rich motherfuckers who pretended like they didn't have a penny, never did anything for you, but would always give you good advice at Enrico's restaurant, North Beach. So one of these guys gave us this list, and here's how you raise money, secret list. There are 25 names on this list. Wow, that's great. We'll, and we're looking, we, we actually knew some of the names, and we'd ask them, who's this guy? And they go, oh, he's the guy who funded that commune in New Mexico. And he's got his money from the tobacco thing, his family, and he's guilty. He's from R.J. Reynolds' family. He was very guilty. That's how they were tapping. That's where the people, these people were raising money from. This guy, Stanley Marsh, was on the list. SM3, Stanley Marsh 3, not Roman numeral, just 3. <laughs> Stanley Marsh 3, Amarillo, Texas, wrote him a letter. And he said, he sent back on stationery that was... Uh, what's this? Two and a half feet by about a foot envelope with type, typewriter, IBM font, typewriter font, two inches high. It was, it was engraved in stationary and the whole, you opened up, it was a huge sheet and it was typed, this huge thing. It's Texas, everything bigger in Texas. <laughs> and I'm not kidding you. This was a mind fuck. This is letter back from Stanley Marsh three who said, well, I love that proposal. Y'all sound like a nice, clean bunch of kids, but I only do things in Texas, Amarillo. So you ever have a good project, clean project, good, clean project? Let me know. Might do it here in Amarillo. Well, I started corresponding with Stanley because this was really interesting to get letters from him. Yeah. And, um, he he is a major character, major character, and he um, I could tell you about Stanley for a million years. He is the guy who funded the Cadillac Ranch, and I had always, even at Ant Farm, my drawings, I drew <coughs> the Cadillac tail. 
Cadillac tail fins. And as I grew up loving Cadillac cars because black people drove them. Drove them. <coughs> and um, I, I just loved them. <coughs> I love cars in general, but excuse me. Sorry. <coughs> no. I'm not going to We could cut those oh, coughs out. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I can't, I, they, they might be good coughs. <laughs> so, um, Matt, it was amazing that I just drew up these cars. <clears throat> and Stanley, I had a project for Stanley, for myself, for Ant Farm, <clears throat> which was, you know, <clears throat> yeah. give me some of that Cadillac ranch water. <laughs> Man. I should have offered I didn't know if you wanted my dirty mouth. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> my, 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 faith, my mouth has been worth places. So, anyway, this might be boring, but it's not. I started sending Stanley's images, and I had an idea of a process piece. Stanley had funded postcards from a photographer named Stephen Shore, who takes... <laughs> boring pictures of nothing. <laughs> I don't know what's come over me. It's a fucking crazy. allergy or something. But anyway, he did uh, a thing called 17 Views of Amarillo. Brilliant art piece. 17 postcards of intersections and warehouses. <laughs> <laughs> dusty streets and put it in a postcard package scenic you know the package of the scenic postcard then and 12 postcards of San Francisco and they took those out and they put them in all the tourist spots in Texas slipped them in they didn't sell them they just slipped them into the racks postcard racks of Stanley's idea pretty good art I thought um so I said, you know what, seed packets, we could do the same thing with seed packets, because at all the feed stores and every garden shop, there's a rack with seed packets, so it's sort of zinnias and sunflowers and stuff, but we could grow cars. So I, I mocked up a seed packet with a 49 Ford and a Cadillac <clears throat> going, yeah, these are seeds, you plant these, these cars will grow. <laughs> so <laughs> Stanley thought that was a fantastic idea. As we'll go with high hippies, Stanley had quote an army of hippies at work for him. A communist and hippies, he called them. They were all real smart college kids who wanted to work for this incredible bazillionaire, Stanley Marsh, who inherited a lot of money, but he turned the fortune over four or five times. He was an amazing guy. And Stanley uh, did real good things with his money. Uh, but he was, he was a bit of a magic Christian. He tortured people with his money, too. Uh, fascinating character. And he's still with us, although he's ill. But that was the first contact I had with Stanley, kind of drawing stuff. And Stanley said he'd like to do the seed packet thing. And then I drew a thing with Cadillacs and came across a book at the same time. It's what our parents call coincidence, and we call cosmic. This is cosmic, man, with a K. Cosmic with a K, from Southern California. Uh, we came across this book, and it was called The Look of Cars. And it was a textbook, most probably like a high school, a junior high school textbook. And it was how automobiles are made. 
yeah, you know, from design to, and it's got these pictures of, you know, General Motors technicians and a huge clay thing and pictures of guys drafting, you know, with short hair, how to make a car. This is how you do it. This is America, <laughs> goddammit. Well, <clears throat> and it was published most, published mid sixties. And in it, it had a chapter called The Rise and Fall of the Tail Fan. Went, holy shit. Realized, because we were car nuts and Cadillac nuts, you could represent the the first, I'll show you the first Cadillac Ranch drawing, the first thing that came from the Cadillac Ranch drawing. You could represent each one of these things. You have the 49, there's a little tail fan. 50 is a little bit bigger. 54, getting big. 55, fuck, till it goes up to the 59, which is 42 inches off the ground. Tip, asphalt, the tip of the tailpin, 42 inches is that huge, wow. cliched 59 yeah. Cadillac fan with the big bullets. Like, it's like those bullet tail lights over there. Those are Cadillac b- bullets. Then that started going down to where in 64, a little bitty tip back there. <laughs> And we got 10 representative years and drew that out. It's actually the rise and fall of the tail fan. Everybody's going, oh, there's just a bunch of Cadillacs buried. But they actually, it's, you know, there's some thought behind it, although I wouldn't admit it. There's no thought involved here. It was, I, it was smoking weed, drinking Jack Daniels, and talking to Texans. <laughs> come up with, he come up with this stuff. And, um, Stanley, I drew it up. Uh, Stanley said we'll do this right now wow yeah so that's how the piece got done who who owns the land now well stanley owns Still. the land stanley owns the land stanley owns the piece we have the copyright stanley never oh monetized right? anything about it no stanley stanley was like stanley was known and wanted to be known as you know character and he was a professional character for a while i mean he's stanley marsh he did right he, he did he went to new york and he saw the Oldenburg stuff and went, this is bullshit. <clears throat> I can do this. They had the wherewithal to be able to do it. He made a huge thing called the Phantom Pool Table. And they're huge K-Pock balls, pool balls, and, and cues, and a whole pool set, and green to put it on. And he had, he had his ranch hands move it around. It was hidden. People would come That's to crazy. see Stanley and his art collection, and he would have some of his hippies drive them out, or some of his cowboys drive them out. That's pretty crazy. Find the phantom pool table. And there would just be cows out there with this pool table. He also he did a great piece called the uh, again, Invisible Mesa. There's a, a mesa, so a little butte of land there. And he put a – and the sky is huge. This is North Texas. And it's Amarillo is a dusty, low-rise warehouse kind of town. Not a lot of big buildings. Stanley owns the biggest building, 40 stories. <laughs> Emerald Dance, the main building. Of course. But Stanley out in the country put a stainless steel mirror about 40 feet long in the middle, facing straight out in the middle of this mesa from end to end. This little butte. It reflects the sky, which is the same sky that's behind it, basically, all the time. So it's floating. So that's what it's called, floating mesa. You don't see. It looks like... You know, write that down. Yeah, it looks like um, it looks like the top's floating because it looks like air below it. It's just a mirror reflecting the other sky. Well, Stanley, Stanley, he, he loves art. He loves to do big projects. So this was a project, and the best time we had 
had Stanley put an ad in the newspaper, the Amarillo or whatever it is, Amarillo Daily News, wanted used Cadillacs. And people called up and said, well, I got me a Cadillac car out here. It don't work too good. But well, we had all of these things of used car lots. And Chip and I drove around drinking Drambuie on the rocks, <laughs> smoking weed, and drinking. We had a case of Dr. Pepper. And uh, in a, uh, a rent, what car that Stanley rented for us, we bought a, a 60 Cadillac that ran like a top, 60 coupe, beautiful car, 200 bucks. We drove around that car doing the same thing, buying other cars. And we had a collection of cab. We had, we bought 10 cars and we had a, du- a duplicate for one because we couldn't pass it up. Wow. And we bought those cars. The most we paid for one was $600. And we thought that was an outrage. The guy said, Oh, it's a collector car. Well, your collector car's in half buried now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, guess what, asshole? It's going in the ground. We didn't tell him what's going to happen with it, but he got his 600 bucks and we, we buried him. Yeah. Wow. We had a backhoe operated dig holes. We drove them in, drove the cars there. Why do you think there's not a lot of art? Like, like I don't know a lot of the current state of art. I've interviewed some contemporary artists, but like, it doesn't seem people are being that risky anymore or going out that far. It seems – am I wrong? No, I think pe- – well, um, <clears throat> I, I don't go to a lot of shows – and I did some for, for a while as an experiment. I, I subscribed to a, a art forum for a year. I, I'm sorry, I didn't see anything that you know ever grabbed me at all. Uh, I, the current New Yorker, uh, uh, no, today's New York Times has a piece about a guy, art school graduate who he's good looking kid too. This has a lot to do with it. And the art world is in New York. They don't think we exist out here. It's the West Coast doesn't really have art. Um, this is a kid who prints stripes. They're decorative and they look kind of cool, but they look just like a painter from the 60s named Ken Nolan, who was a great artist. He's printing on linen on the world's biggest inkjet printer, red and green stripes. And it's kind of like he's fooling with scale. He's taking things out of context. I understand what the guy's doing. He's putting, he's all the rage. You know, I'm not saying the guy, you know, art doesn't have to be hard to be good. I mean, you know, just because somebody draws a lot of little lines, you go, gee, that, that took a lot of work. <laughs> and I'm going, well, yeah. you know, I, I ran over this dog with this GTO one time. Uh, he, well, that's not art. I didn't take any time to do. I don't look like a real dog. You know, fuck that, you know? People, yeah. But I, I don't say, for example, I agree with you that I do look at the current art world uh, and there are some really great artists around. And and the big artists, you know, I think Andy Warhol was, Warhol was like the biggest influence in the 20th century. And I mean, the more influence than fucking Picasso. I mean, Warhol, was, Andy was a real deal. And um, the, uh, Jeff Koons, I like Jeff Koons a lot. People just hate these. They don't, they like Jeff Koons. There's a lot of great people. You know, they're all New York. It just it seems like like I interviewed a guy a couple weeks ago, Brian Lewis Saunders, and he does portrait. He does like a portrait. He's done eight thousand self portraits. On by and great. He, he did a week of where he doesn't do drugs or anything, but he would, he was is he the guy who took the drugs and did those self portraits? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did him. Oh, you did. You talked to that guy? Yeah, he's that fascinating. Was fantastic. But he that's, that's like fantastic. one week he did, and he's like, and he's done all these others, and he does some kind of like. 
he does what he calls it stand up tragedy. <laughs> oh, he that's great. Really, he's really unique, but he's like. He sort of knows. He's like, I'm not really ever going to fit in because I didn't go to art school. Yeah. He's like self, but it's like his stuff is really oh, that, amazing. Well, that 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 piece he did, um, where he took a drug and did the portraits, were was fantastic. And I know that that's been on Facebook. And what I do, my daily routine is, um, I read a couple of newspapers in the morning at about five thirty or six, and I paint pictures during the day, and I look for ideas. And uh, I don't look for them. I just kind of wait for them to come. That's why I'm reading the newspapers. But I, I, I paint, and I go to Facebook. While I'm painting, I look at this painting, and I put it in paint hats. I paint acrylics. They dry very fast. So I dry. I watch the paint dry, and I stare. I'll show you. I'll take you to my studio. I stare at the stuff. Go, yeah, okay. And I go on Facebook. I get addicted to Facebook. <laughs> totally fucking Facebooked out. <clears throat> I have, I have friends that I communicate with a message with I've never met. Pretty incredible people. They're not... I have those too. You, you yeah. know, it's like, it's pretty amazing. The it's Facebook. great because this is, it's a way I'm finding people to talk to that like the, the yeah. lawyer I was talking about and like these, and Brian Lewis Saunders. I, I yeah, just, I just, well, you, like, you, you, you got can, in touch with him from seeing that piece? Yeah, I got, I think I got his email off of a website, but it's like, man, but, and then just, how great is that piece? Well, I'm gonna, I, I was leading up to him. I was, I took a long time to do it. it was, I saw that on Facebook. And I'm like, this is fucking great. It's a great piece. And I read the drugs, and I'm going, yeah, I'm taking almost all those drugs, I suppose. <laughs> some, 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 I were, some I was addicted to for a long time. I don't, haven't had a drug or a drink in many, many years now. Uh, but fine for them to love it. Take dope. That's good. He, he doesn't I, do happy. drugs. That's well, the amazing thing. He's well, a, that's, he drinks a little bit. Yeah, well, that when I saw that, I knew instinctively that this guy didn't do drugs, or else he would have been doing this. <laughs> his, all of his stuff would look like one of those. It would look like the cocaine one or the Dilaudid one or the heroin. But the funny thing about the piece is other people's comments on Facebook, well, that's this is bullshit. You couldn't take those drugs. I'm going, couldn't take those drugs? Excuse me. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> He's, well, if you took that drug, you couldn't be able to make art. I'm going, oh, no, I know, no, no. This guy's for real. Yeah, uh, haven't you seen art. any art in the last or music in the last fifty years? Most of it's been <laughs> influenced. Yeah, I don't. Maybe have heard of uh, psychedelic music. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I did this drawing on LSD. I did this drawing on you know heroin. I, I, it's hard to. Well, I can't I do anything. Like if 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 I smoke weed or drink, uh -huh. I can't creatively. It's just it's or anything. Like I can't watch a movie. I can't. I have. Well, that's what happened. The information. That's why I stopped. That's why I stopped. Well, I stopped, I stopped smoking weed a really long time ago with TV TV. Nixon was being nominated. And for the that, first. Because that makes you want to at, drink. At, <laughs> at, 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 well, this was at the Republic. I was at the Republican convention. I was 100 feet from Nixon. You had, had a, your shot. And had a, they, they, they weren't aware of the nitrous oxide problem at the time. So we had, I had a big, I had an E tank. I had a balloon of nitrous and a joint. And I decided that if, if I could get close enough, I was going to light the joint. Cause I, why did I think this? Cause I was stoned. So we took the balloons out on the thing and we were like, we shot everything we could do and we'd shot Nixon with people shooting and I was one of the producers. So I had the, the ability to lug the luxury to do this. I smoked my last joint. I was watching Nixon being nominated with the, with the Secret Service looking around people shooting him. They were not looking for just trash like us. 
And there, there was so much smoke. People just smoke. It was smoke. Yeah, there was so much smoke. You couldn't, you know. So I was, yeah. Safe to say you were the only guy smoking weed at the Republican convention? No, I was not the only person smoking <laughs> weed. There were a lot of other hippies who were there. And I gave my, you know that, that scene in, uh, what's that movie, The Fourth of July? Born on the Fourth of July? Born on the Fourth of July, I've never yeah. seen that angle. Where, well, Ron Kovic is this guy who's a real-life guy who comes in, I think it was played by that stunning, incredible personality, that giant <laughs> actor and religious activist Tom Cruise. And so, but he's in a wheelchair, and he gets into the floor of the Republican convention, and he was a vet. Kovic was a vet. This is all about veterans being fucked by Vietnam. And he comes in in a wheelchair with some other people and starts screaming, stop the motherfucking war, stop the mother. It's this famous movie scene. Well, that happened right there. But I got really paranoid from smoking this weed because Ron Kovic had my credentials around his neck. That's how he got in. Wow. So I'm like, this is the last joint I smoked. I'm smoking the weed and I'm going, oh, man. I'm going to go, this is going to be a federal deal. <laughs> and I saw in my future, I, I, I mean, I, I got nothing against being a criminal at all. I mean, I, I think stealing from the man is good. I think robbing banks is great. But I, I, when I was a kid, I was taken to a jail cell in Orleans Parish Prison and shown a jail cell. And I was eight years old. I realized, I said, where are the books? And I said, you don't get any books. And I went, oh, and I'm afraid of jail. Wayne, Wayne Kramer and I have talked about this a lot. Yeah. And it's one of the problems. It's one of the reasons Wayne is doing jail guitar doors. But, man, I, I just a big criminal. And um, here I was uh, being a fucking criminal. And they don't, they don't like yeah. Vietnam vets. And they didn't like this disruption to the fucking Republican. And these guys were scary, these Nazis. Haldeman and these pricks. And Nixon, oh, gee. And I think I, I'm going straight to hell and jail. And um, it didn't happen. But that's what was happening with me on marijuana. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, was, uh, I would either get paranoid or I would get real sleepy. And one time I didn't smoke the joint that was going around it, socially. And I realized it, I just didn't want to – I just – I didn't inhale. And – I've heard that before. I, yeah, we've heard that a lot. <laughs> it's a great line, isn't it, though? I didn't yeah. inhale. Uh, yeah. Uh, they, uh, I realized that my partners were, uh, we were in a business meeting, I'm talking, joints going around. I realized, hey, this is stupid. And it's not funny either. I said, let me see, I'm going to back this. I'm going to do some experimentation. And next time we're smoking weed together, I'm going to not smoke. It happened every time. I was I was frightened. I mean, I've been sounding like this for all these years since I was fourteen and Walter the janitor gave me a joint, a hit off of a joint at a white private school in the janitor's room from Walter who worked shades, smoked cool cigarettes, and swept up the gym. He's the coolest guy. He was a janitor at the gym, Walter, he's a black guy. I was fourteen years old, I was just marijuana, I was like in love with it. Now I'm like, wow, I, I just can't, I, you know, this stupid people have getting really, my friends were getting really stupid on. And this is before the wheelchair weed they sell now. I mean, this was Mexican regular. Yeah, man, I, I just don't you know, understand drugs. I was, I was a cocaine addict for years, alcoholic cocaine. That's how I made art. Um, that's how I made art. I get an eight ball, uh, a six pack of uh, San Miguel, 
and uh, a bottle of Maker's Mark. And also some vodka in the freezer just in case I run out of something. And a carton of cigarettes. And I would stay up for a day and a half making art. That's how I made art. So when I stopped taking, you know, drugs and um, uh, drinking, because I realized I was going to die. I think that's what happens to people who are in my situation. Uh, they realize they're going to die or they're going to wind up in jail for the prison for the rest of their life. Something terrible is going to happen. Yeah, neither, neither, neither good choices. <laughs> no, I, I didn't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't mind dying. That doesn't sound like such a bad deal, but I think ODN on Coke being up for too long yeah. or something like that, that's not going to be fun or just going to jail. And I've been going to, I seemed I was visiting jail rather often at the time for my exploits, but I was afraid to stop taking drugs because I might not be able to make art. And I didn't. I stopped, and I just couldn't. I didn't paint. I didn't do anything for about a year or so. I just didn't do yeah, anything. It takes- I, I listened to a lot of Amos Milburn and a lot of long hair, a lot of Bobby Bland, a lot of Freddie King, you know, a lot of Albert King. I, I, you know, I listened to, you know what, I, I listened to, uh, I think that really kept me straight until I started to be able to work without being high, that's one of the reasons I love the guy's piece because he did what he does on those drugs. And um, I recognize being on those drugs and making art. And the fact that you tell me that he doesn't take drugs, just he did this to do this. Yeah. He just, I think he drinks wild turkey now and again. <laughs> that's oh my like, God. But I, that's incredible. He's amazing. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm oh, no, no, gone way too. Uh, it's it's oh, it's amazing. I just wanted to check. Yeah, but I can't thank you enough. This has been oh, incredibly yeah. well, riveting. Right. You know, I, 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 you know what? I don't tell the story very often. Yeah, I, I but I also outside of the professor long hair yeah. stuff, I wanted to talk yeah. to you about oh, your about things. the other stuff. Yeah, and it's yeah. been really amazing. So I can't thank you enough oh, for this. Sure. Well, I, 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 I'm flattered that somebody wanted to hear about it. Now, you know what? Now. I've had a beef. I've had a beef, and I'm the guy who carries a grudge. <sighs> I, you know, I've had psychiatrists up my ass since I was five years old, and <laughs> I still carry a grudge. And I, sometimes I, I get really angry. Well, I'm working on the anger thing, but um, <laughs> the grudge thing I don't think is going to go away. The guy I was talking about, white, the white roach, Quint, who yeah. managed Fest, Quint lied. And Allison went along with it. But Quint lied and said he found Professor Longhair, that he ran into him at a record store and found him and brought him back to life. And it was actually what I did. And I resent Quint Davis for this lie. But what's happened is it's become history now. It's become the truth. Because people wrote about it. And they wrote this story. And I'm like, what? Quint, you lying sack of shit. Why would you want, you know, credit's not hard to give. You say, so-and-so did this. Right. It's like, no, Quinn has this myth. He said that he and Allison were looking for long hair for a long time. He said they used to go on the public service buses and look for somebody with big fingers that could play the piano. Ugh. And I'm going. That sounds like such bullshit. It, well, Quint Davis on a bus? This is, Quint Davis is a guy whose dad... Gave him an XKE, but he was too young to drive. So he had a black chauffeur in a two-seat English sports car on Saturdays. He would make the rounds of the clothes stores to buy snappy clothes. 
This is a guy who's going to be riding a fucking bus looking for an old black guy. Anyway, Quint, because there's an incredible myth, he said he invented the Jazz Fest by having a meeting with George Ween, in which Ween said, you know, if we could find somebody local to anchor this thing, we'll start small. And uh, Quint said, Professor Longhair, I'll go out and find him. This is like utter bullshit. And, and I, you know what? When I would I'd write to the editor of a magazine and say, you know, I have to correct something. This this isn't actually true. I'm the I'm the white boy who this is my I'm the white boy who found Professor Longhair, and I turned him over to Quint, who did a wonderful job for him. But you, let's get the history straight. I get letters back from editors and music writers going, uh, excuse me, we're not interested in who's hipper than who. That's not hip, it's truth. It's the <laughs> truth. It's a big going, difference. Wait a minute, you're a journalist and you want, don't you, you know something's not true and you just want to <clears throat> Turns out a couple of the journalists, Quint takes to Africa every year. Oh, interesting. How interesting <laughs> is this? And they are newspaper writers who write the music columns. They write the music scene. Quint takes some, I found this out a couple of years ago. Quint goes to Africa every year and, uh, uh, in high style. Fucking A, 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 uh, A list. No toy town safari for him. I mean, this is like to go watch music and stuff and stay in 12 star hotels that they have. But we don't know about them. Because, yeah, it's not, I'm not going to get in those. We're not, Quint does, and he takes them. So then I started realizing um, how shocking a journalist would not write the truth. That's Ernie Cato. That's Ernie Cato. He's the boy cat here. <laughs> and uh, you won't see the Max cat, my favorite little kitty, Tipitina. She's a, uh, she's a red cat, fat red cat. <laughs> and then there's Lucille. A black cat, but this Ernie's the only. Ernie's just a pain in the ass. He brings in rats and shit all the time. He's a boy. He's fixed, but they still act like men. I know. I hear it it's all the time. From, but anyway, <laughs> anyway, Quint, Quint Tables has been. Well, there's a writer named Jason Berry, who's a he's a hot shit writer. He lives in New Orleans. He's from New Orleans. He's a real hot shit writer. He writes a lot of Washington politics stuff. Jason's writing a story for the Oxford American. Music issue that's going to include my story in it. Oh, great. For the first time. For the first time. And it's funny that I'm talking to Jason this week. Over We're going to do this over the phone. But that you would do this the same week. It's like, you know. And just look what happened. The Cadillac Ranch Target <laughs> connection. If anybody wants an oven mitt, they got them. And they're cheap. Tea towels and oven mitts, they come in a package. <laughs> and you get four plastic plates with the Cadillac Ranch and this kind of zoomy design on it for only 15 bucks. That's a deal. It is a deal. <laughs> well, I guess you can't suppress the truth. That's what we're doing. Yeah. You can't suppress the truth either. God, I just love that artist piece, you know. Yeah, they're, they're, and they're, you know, a good artist in L.A. I mean, Ed, Ed Ruscha is a very good artist. Ed is a guy. Ed is a kind of quintessential L.A. artist, and he's an old pal. And his wife, I've known for a million years. And I, I, but he's he's a nice guy. He's a good guy, and he makes great fucking art. He's the iconic L.A. He's the L.A. artist. Um, I don't get a lot of this other stuff. I see young kids. Who have incredible technical skills. I mean, it's amazing. They've gone to art school and shit, and they had the, they had already had that. And the art school just developed it, refined it. 
They can paint shit that, I mean, it's amazing what they can do. I can't paint. I'm a folk artist. I, you know, they told me to get the fuck out of art school. So I, I just have to, play, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. But uh, they do. But they don't have a fucking idea. I mean, it's, it's like, like emotion or anything. Yeah, there's nothing. It's kind of like dead on the thing, dead on arrival. But boy, there's a lot of work in it. And they learned how to do this shit. Great. They can paint naked women really good. And they can paint Ganesha, the African god, really good. And they can paint b- the big keen eyes and dripping thing. Use a laser printer? <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know, I swear to God. You know, they call those for a long time. I haven't heard this term. Well, I, now I can't remember the term. But it is, instead of saying printer, printed, ink, you know, inkjet or laser print, they had a word for it that was French. I can't, I can't remember it. I, I, I feel stupid. I don't know French. So yeah, don't, well, don't feel French. Hmm? No, I don't know any Not French either. tongue. No, no, no. My, my family came from Spain to Louisiana, 1742. And they married French people, though. And they married English people. <laughs> and they fucked up a lot down there. It's a mix, it's a mix down there. But, uh, but I, I go to France, which I absolutely positively adore, uh, as often as possible. When I get saved with this Cadillac Ranch money, psh, right fucking there. Um, but my wife, you know, she tries hard. She's a good person and she, she does homework and, you know, I'll let her talk to France. So, but, um, no, there's a French word called, it's called a, a oh, a gicle. That's the word. G-I-C-L-E-E. Gicle. So you see this thing and you go, what is it? And they go, it's a gicle. It's a print. It's a gicle. And you go, oh, is your clay? Sounds good. Guess what? It's a fucking inkjet print. <laughs> it's all. I mean, it, 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 anyway, it, it drives me nuts. But that was the sale. That was the sales point. Was it? it was Giclet. <laughs> as long as it sounds good, that's all you need. That, you know what? It works for a lot of people. It does. It works, you know, people. Well, you know, basically, I, I just have this terrible idea that. Um, Boy, and I get ragged out for this from my wife and from I said, people are basically stupid. And I'm frightened with this election thing because, uh, I mean, I, I used to try to give Americans a break, you know. I was never one in the 60s and burning buildings and shit like that. do that. But, I mean, I, I never was like fucking yeah. comedy motherfuckers. It was like, you want to? Talk about it at SDS, or you just want to burn the building? I'll just go burn the fucking building. This talk is, you know, boring. You try to pick up a chick at an SDS meeting, but listen to these boring guys talking about communism, and they, nobody ever does anything. Well, I just go and burn the Rossi building. It's okay with me. I know how to figure that out. In high school, made fires, burn the Rossi building. But I never was like, get fucking hard. Man, this, and I was never like, oh, the Americans are fucking stupid. These bourgeois. Man, I'm... Uh, it's getting terrifying. It's terrifying. It really is, don't I read some th- statistic the other day that we're the like, most religious country. Like, And, of course, when I hear that, I think the yeah. fucking right-wing, like... Fanatic. Eh, creationism. Yeah. <laughs> like, those things that are utterly terrible. Like, I'm like, creation, really, creationism. Well, really. You, my friend Lucian Truscott, the writer, is a wonderful guy. Lucian lives in, is a wonderful writer, wrote a great book called Dress Gray about his experience at West Point. Lucian Truscott the fourth, Lucian wrote that the congressman in Tennessee, where he lives on a farm in Tennessee, that the congressman who they're home now, they're all back in their districts, uh, raising money and blowing you know dogs 
you know, to, did you say blowing dogs? Well, yeah, they, I think that's what politicians do when they go back home to their district, blow dogs. Anyway, so uh, but they don't want anybody to know about the dog blowing except the people who all have the money. They pay the politician lots of money in a super PAC, but politicians have to perform. And that means besides giving them back, you know, any law they want, they have to blow a dog. So, <laughs> so this guy, this dog blowing, sister fucking masturbating, chain smoking cocksucker <coughs> of a congressman said that he's promising his constituency that he's going to pass a law when he gets back to Congress that's going to put religion back in government. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's, uh... This is like, Lucian said, I have to, I, uh, being living here in Tennessee, I have to report these things. I mean, uh, Lucian said, also, as the fifth great-grandson of a man who wrote in the Constitution, amendment, blah, 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 wrote separation. My forebearer did, wrote that. I have to report that. <laughs> that said separation of church and state. I have to report this. But, you know, you hear this goofy shit. And, I mean, I'm just afraid these people not only believe it, but they hate Obama so much. President, I think what Bill Markham, President Blackity Black. Yeah. I, That's what, uh, yeah. I was in Orange County last time, I was in, and I saw one of those great nutcases that writes on all over their car oh, yeah, or van. But this guy has a big new Lincoln, and he uh, he'd written all over it with white shoe polish, which will wash off. And what it, it was all this wacky anti-Obama stuff. I mean, wacky. It was it was pretty wonderful. I couldn't get a picture of it because I was. Yeah, and most but, of that, it's like you're not going to change our opinions. You're just you're just screaming nigger without saying <laughs> nigger. Exactly, that's what it is. To that's me. what it is. And you know, I'm like, then we're not going to change these people's minds. It's like there's a nigger in the White House, and we are not going for that shit. Uh, somehow he slipped in, and we got to get rid of him because he's black. Not, uh, I mean, just a uh, man. I hope, to, I hope the next president's a Mexican, and <laughs> yeah. I, I just oh, hope it keeps driving yeah, them crazy. Drive them fucking nuts. <laughs> but, well, uh, Hillary, should, what if oh, Hillary? Oh, yes, yeah, she might. Uh, yeah, she's that, would be, that would be fucking. There was a guy who spoke, a Mexican guy who spoke at the uh, convention, and yeah. I was like, that guy's gunning for, like, might not be the next in four, but probably well, eight the, or twelve. Yeah, you know, but unfortunately, for. one of the people they're promoting is a pipsqueak here. Our our crooked oh. little bastard here, oh, Villagorosa, he, the pipsqueak, the pissant. I think he's got too much dirt under his fingernails. Oh, boy. They are, I mean, that's another thing about Los Angeles that... Uh, it's like see. getting a mayor from Chicago to be president. It's not going to fucking happen. <laughs> president Daly? No. Yeah, it's the but same you, shit. Well, the thing is, that, well, see, people here in Los Angeles, to me, growing up in a corrupt environment like New Orleans and knowing everybody I know from Chicago and Buffalo and Albany and blah, 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 these are like places where corruption is taken as an entertainment you know, it's like we never hide. I'm from Chicago. Yeah, we they, never hide. You don't hide that. This is like, hey, in New Orleans, it's exactly the same way. You look on the front page; it says Mayor steals five million bucks, and they go, "Well, that's slick." Turn the page. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, that's what happened. Same as Chicago. It's like, yeah. well, the alderman did that. Well, yeah. Next page, page two. So this city, you talk to honest uh, about it. The people here are like, just nothing goes on here. This is, and it's like. 
You've got to be kidding me. The reporters don't report it. It's just slick. Yeah. It is slick. This stadium downtown, the fucking mini malls we have, the religious groups that have broken every law in town who are backed by the councilman, this is like they just pay them off. Anyway, that's the far away from art, isn't it? <laughs> that's the art of politics. That's, that's where we go on this. But I well, should I should wind it up because we are near yeah. But uh, I want to thank you. Is there any website or anything like that you want to plug? Or? No, you know what? I'm on Facebook, and I have a show of paintings coming what? at the La Luz de Jesus Gallery in Los Angeles in Hollywood. What's the date? In the, uh, the first week of January. But I'll put it up on my uh, Facebook page. I'll, I gotta it's find just Hudson on Marquez on FB there. Make, make me a... F- Make you, I, you know what? Is it a yeah. like or a friend? Huh? I, naked pictures. <laughs> naked pictures. But people with guns. I'll my friend anybody. A naked chick or a guy with a gun. I'll, I'll a guy. Wait, a guy with a gun and a dog. I'm gonna. That's. I got a dog. That's <laughs> yeah, the best I can do. <laughs> thank you very much, Hudson. You're very, thank you, doctor. Thank you. thank you very much for listening to conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. And uh, I'm doing I'm doing the intro here at the outro. I told you at the top of the show, I was a little out of it. <laughs> and I'm clearly a little out of it. But uh, if you like the show, please uh, donate us some dough because we could really use it. We are very bare bones there. Um, and I clearly need like an operation on my brain because I'm doing the intro at the outro. So uh, I need help. I need your help financially. Um, if you can't afford to make a donation, go uh, through the Amazon link there and uh, buy some stuff on Amazon, and that money goes into uh, my account, and then uh, I can, you know, get some gas and afford equipment and keep these interviews going and keep talking to interesting, awesome people that most people don't interview because I'm cool. That's right, I'm cool. Uh, if you like the show too, also, uh, you know, write a review and like it on the old uh, iTunes there. Write something pretty about me. Say something about my sexy, frilly voice. And uh, follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore Dwyer, please, there on the on the old Twitter. And uh, email me if you like it, conversationswithdwyer at gmail if you have any ideas for people I should interview. Or if you want to tell me, uh, hey, Dwyer, your point of view is really way to the left and kind of full of shit. Or send me a picture of your underwear, if you're a lady. I really want to see a guy's pair of underwear. Maybe I do. Maybe I want to know what an under pair of underwear that isn't, uh, like, five years old looks like. Because <laughs> I got a lot of old underwear. I'm going to fucking get off this show thing. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have fun with the world. Power to the people. So I breathe. It's back to you. Be the trap. National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.